0: If you are just joining us, we have been in a little mini-series on the Psalms that Joshua, who you met earlier, has led us through, and uh, before that, um, we were in a series in the book of Mark, which we're returning to today. Mark 12, and these famous words of Jesus, to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. While I was away, on June 15th, our Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, referenced Romans 13 in relation to the immigration policies that are happening right now. And when he did so, it set off, it ignited this firestorm of comment. Uh, and that's from Christians and Christian media and sources and pastors uh, to uh, secular sources alike, uh, the USA Today and other places. And and a lot of people wondered, is it appropriate for the Attorney General to bring the Bible in? People have concerns about the separation of church and state and a lot of anxieties. Uh, but but it's, it's also true, isn't it, that when, and it's not just when... Politicians use the Bible, but it's when preachers talk about politics that people get anxious, right? And there's a lot of dangers that I understand the anxiety. There's a lot of dangers, a lot of concerns. Concerns about the proper separation between church and state, which today in our secularized society really means the separation between faith and state, uh, but but it's, it's worth noting that to say that you believe in the separation of church and state is a faith statement and that you can't really get away from that. It's impossible. But I get the concern. It's also there are concerns that uh, church might be too closely aligned with one particular party or platform. There's concerns that you might alienate people who disagree with you on one side or the other, Uh, there's concerns that the church in addressing issues from the pulpit might simplify really, really complex problems that they'd have no authority to address or knowledge to address. And there are concerns, I think valid concerns, that the church will lose its central message. the message of salvation and the gospel. So for these reasons, um, people say, I don't want politics in my pulpit. Some people have come here to this church because they told me there was too much politics in the church where they were. And some people, uh, actually lots of people, have not liked my preaching because they say you get too political. Other people say I'm not political enough. It's interesting, though, when people say that. One thing that I've found is that, you know, um, if I talk about right-to-life issues, you know, then people say, well, that's not political. That's just being biblical. And then other people say, he's being too political. And then when I talk about, like, Ephesians 2 and 3 and racism and racial issues, which are there in the Bible, people say, why is he getting so political? And other people say, oh, now finally he's addressing from the Bible these real issues and concerns, right? So really, when people say, I've learned that the code is he's being too political is he's challenging my politics. Things might have implications for my politics on both sides, really. Well, because of all these dangers and all these concerns, some have said uh, what the church really needs to do is to focus on spiritual matters, and the church and its officers need to focus on spiritual matters and leave politics to private individuals as Christians, right? And... um, There are various. I understand this because their concern is that, uh, and I get this concern. The concern is that, you know, I, like anyone else, I don't want the church focusing on or elders' meetings taken up with things like what kind of uh, what kind of uh, what kind of taxes are right or interest rates are right or or. Or sale of cars, and open a car lot, right? Or church have coffee shops, and then they got to think about like, well, how much do we mark up the coffee? And, and I get it. But a couple of churches that have taken that policy, one's the, national, uh, the German National Church, who was silent as Hitler rose to power. Another was the Southern Presbyterian Church, who refused to speak out about the atrocities of slavery. And, uh, and there's even been in American Presbyterianism a whole doctrine called the spirituality of the church that people um, talk about where they say the church shouldn't address these issues. But I've never been really convinced by that, even though I understand the concerns. And here's why. When you say, just stick to the main issue, just stick to the gospel and not politics... Well, I have questions like, what is political? And what's just the Bible, right? Like we talked about earlier. And the other question is, what is the gospel? Because according to Paul in Romans 10, the gospel is that you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. I mean, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead so that the gospel is the message of Jesus as the crucified and risen Lord but that's actually a very political message because Caesar was called Lord and a crucifixion was a political instrument meant to hold down others. And so when you say the crucified one is Lord, you are making an intrinsic political statement. Period. There's no way around it. And and besides... Uh, when, we, when we say that the church shouldn't address the magistrate, then the question concerns, uh, well, who should? And if it's the church's job to expose the scriptures, then, then who's to tell the magistrate what is true evil and what is not? And what is righteousness and justice? It seems odd that those given... The ministry of the word would not actually use the word to do that. And besides, in the Bible, over and over again, we see prophets speaking to kings, and not just kings in Israel, but also outside of Israel, about what constitutes true justice. And so there's this tension and this difficulty, and you can feel it in the room, even me talking about it. How should Christians view government? And what is the relationship between the church and the state? Well, that brings us to our very next passage in Mark. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. Hear God's word. And they sent him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, that is Jesus, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is the word of the Lord. And Lord, I ask that you would grant me, as one person prayed earlier, the ability to rightly divide the word of truth and to proclaim the lordship of Christ over every human institution. And may we all think rightly about this challenging subject for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, in verse 13, the Pharisees and the Herodians come to talk to Jesus. And that right there is an indication that something is amiss because these are strange partners. The Pharisees are the political conservatives. They are the ones who reject Rome and Rome's teaching, and they reject Rome's pony fake paper rulers like Herod. The Herodians, though, are those who support Herod. They're in league with him. So you have people from the left and the right, and they get together because, you know, a common enemy makes strange friends. And so these strange friends come up to Jesus, and they come, the text says, in order to trap him in his talk. This is not, this is not an earnest question. And they start with flattery, of course. Teacher, we know that you are true. And do not care about anyone's opinion. You are not strayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. So whatever you say, we know it's going to be with integrity. We know it's going to be right. Tell us, tell us, tell us. They set the trap. But how is this a trap, this question? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or not? That seems pretty straightforward. Should we pay our taxes? But that's because we live in the 21st century and not in the first century. You see, you have to understand that these are Israelites. Israelites living in Israel who are ruled by Rome. Rome has exerted its rulership over Israel, and yet who is to be Israel's king? God. And God's appointed Messiah. Messiah. And so to accept the kingship of someone else was to, in essence, deny the kingship of God, many Jews thought. And so to, to pay taxes to Caesar was to, was to condone, it seemed, this blasphemous and foreign government. And all the Jews knew it. And so if Jesus says, pay your taxes, then he's going to ostracize the people. But if he says, don't pay your taxes, he's going to the the reap the consequences from the political leader. So what does he do? It's a trap. Well, Jesus, Jesus doesn't play their game. He asks for a coin. He asks them to look at it. And then he answers with these famous words. Verse 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And the first thing that you need to note that Jesus does here, that I think he, he does, very simply, is I think Jesus here establishes the legitimacy of government. He does that. When he says, render to Caesar the same things that are Caesar's, he's at least, at the, very, uh, at the very least, he is establishing the legitimacy of government. He is saying that Caesar has an amount of God-given authority. He's saying, in other words, what Paul says in Romans 13, which Jeff Sessions referred to. Romans 13 reads, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resist what God has appointed. Some of us are cynical about government. Some of us believe that government is a necessary evil. And to us, I think Jesus gives this challenge. Government is actually divinely established and appointed for our good. Because here's the thing you and I were made in God's image, who is a community. And as his image bearers, we were meant to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to live as a community. But how do we all live together without some actually like ordering of society and structure? And that's what government gives us. Government allows us and enables us to live together. So government is not a necessary evil. Government is something that's instituted by God for our good so we can do this thing together together. I saw this guy's tattoo the other night. He said, we are here together. Yes, we are here together. And in order to live together, we actually have to have like common laws and ordering of society. Otherwise, you're going to go one way on the street and I'm going to go another way this street and we're going to crash. So we need to make sure that we order life together. Government has been instituted by God for our good so that we can reflect his image as image bearers. And so we need to see that actually government has a very legitimate, honored place in society that God has established. And because of that, we need to render to governments their due. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Romans 13, Paul goes on to spell this out. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God and those that have been instituted of God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resist what God has appointed. Those who resist will incur judgment and render them their due. What does that look like? Well, Paul goes on, it looks like paying taxes. Government have the right to tax their citizens because it costs money to order society. You know, most of us think that tax is evil, period. Like, you can disagree with the tax code, but we should all be okay with taxes. It's something that's necessary to order society, and that's my money. Well, yes and no. Uh, Verse six, "cause of this, you also pay taxes," Paul says. And he says this, "In the context of government as a good, pay taxes. And not only pay your taxes, fulfill other types of civic responsibilities, like jury duty, which we all love. And not only that, I mean, I think that we should be involved in considering elections. Now, I think that you have the right, let me make this really clear, I actually think that you have the right to abstain from voting. I don't think voting is a command. But I think that that should be a reasoned abstention. You should actually have considered all the issues and then said, in light of all that, I'm abstaining. It shouldn't be a laziness, which unfortunately sometimes is in my life. But it's not only that we pay our taxes by giving them their due. We give governing authorities their due by praying for those who govern. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul writes, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority. So we pray. I I remember after um, Barack Obama was elected to his second term, uh, someone who wasn't very happy about it said, I don't know what to do. I mean... I guess I can pray for him. Yeah. Not like I guess I can, like you're called to do it. No matter who won the election, we are called to pray. We're called to pray for President Trump. We're called to pray for Governor Brown. We're called to pray for our elected officials. Uh, and, and not only pray, not only pray, give thanks. Did you hear that? I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, and and he doesn't say, be made for your candidate. He says, for all who are in authority. Sometimes that's hard when you disagree with the one who's there. But there's a lot to give thanks for. And the reality is, is that the stresses of political office and the responsibilities that people have to juggle, no matter who they are and, who, and whether you uh, agree with them or not. I, I've never seen anyone look younger at the end of an eight-year presidency. Okay? And they usually don't look like they just went through eight years. they usually like, have you been here 50 years? I mean, the sleep that these people miss out on and trying to juggle with family and other... Give thanks for President Trump and the fact that he he endures that in the schedule, in the grueling schedule. And makes himself available for calls that he has. And he's willing to enter into the fray of criticism, which most of us are not. And carry that kind of pressure. And everyone who steps in that office is doing that. And so we can give thanks. Give thanks even when you don't believe them even when they're not your candidate. I remember, uh, I remember this kind of phrase that happened after uh, Clinton was elected the first time and there were a lot of bumper stickers around my, my evangelical Christian school. Don't blame me. I voted for Bush. And not my candidate. Not my president. Well, no, they are. It's your president. And it doesn't matter whether or not they're your candidate. You don't get to recuse yourself from participation. Give thanks. And give honor or respect. Verse 7 of Romans 13. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And this is difficult because we live in a society where giving honor to our leaders and authority is not even considered something that, that we should do in the least. And whether it's on political talk shows, be it MSNBC or Fox News, people are not usually so quick to give honor to the person about which they might disagree, or whether it's whether it's our satire, Saturday Night Live, The Daily Show, Kevin Colbert, whatever it may be. We're called to give honor. There was, a, there was a scene that The Crown, the series The Crown, that's about Elizabeth's reign. There's a scene um, that's based on a true story where Prime Minister Harold MacMillan uh, goes into a comedy club called The Establishment to listen to this comedian Peter Cook who is impersonating him. And in the midst of this impersonation, Peter Cook realizes that Harold McMillan is there and then just goes after him in the most derogatory and lambasting kind of way. Uh, and, and, and you feel it in the scene in The Crown. But, um, but I think here's, here's a good test. Could we joke, poke fun, even criticize our leaders in their presence and then still feel honor and respect? Can we do it in such a way where they still feel honor and respect? I mean, we have roasts, right? And there are th- such thing as a roast where you're laughing with someone. And that is showing honor and respect. Honor and respect are still entailed there. Uh, but you can also do it in a way in which honor and respect are lost, We're called to give honor and respect. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. It means to recognize government's legitimate role in society. But I don't think that's all it means. I think that Jesus means much more than that. Because if that's all that Jesus meant, then why in verse 17 do they marvel at him? Why were they amazed? Pay your taxes. And pay your tithe. <gasps> Why would they be amazed? And, and, and Luke says they were silent. In verse 15, Jesus says he knew their hypocrisy. What hypocrisy? Well, we have to remember that this statement comes in a context. And actually, Mark spends a lot of time building up to the statement. For instance, Jesus says in verse 15, Who's got a denarius? Go get one. And they bring to him a denarius. A denarius was that coin that you paid for the tax. You had to pay a denarius. And then he says, verse 15, look at it. So to understand what Jesus is saying next, he wants them to take a long, hard look at the coin. How many of you have seen one of these coins? Okay. A few of you then how are you going to get what Jesus is driving at unless you take a long, hard look at the coin? What's on this coin? Jesus asked the question, verse 16, whose likeness and inscription is this? Now the likeness we can surmise, because they say Caesar's. But what does the likeness look like, and what about this inscription? What does it read? Do you know what it reads? Do you know what this coin reads? Well, if you were to see this coin, and I have, what you would read is you would see a big picture of Caesar on the front. And it would say, and it would be a a picture of Tiberius that read, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Augustus, you've heard of him, right? From the Christmas story? He was the Caesar, Tiberius' father, who was reigning when Jesus was born. And when he died, people considered him to be divine. And do you know what the biggest, most popular religion in the ancient Roman world was at this time? The imperial cult. And everyone except Jews had to worship at the imperial cult. There were more, there were more, um, there were more temples to the imperial cult than there are Southern Baptist churches in Memphis, Tennessee, or... Uh, or you know mormon uh, temples in salt lake city they were everywhere in other words the imperial cult was everywhere and on the coin on the other side was a picture of tiberius as high priest in the imperial cult and so what was this what was this coin saying it was saying that caesar was God. And Tiberius was the high priest and the son of God. Do you know what the first commandment is? You shall have no other gods before me. And do you know what the second is? You shall not make any graven images. And number one and number two were both on this coin. That's why Many Jews believe to even have this coin in your possession was an act of blasphemy and treason. Who's got the coin? Jesus doesn't have the coin. They got the coin. And that's why he knew their hypocrisy. See, they had the coin, but he's holding the cards. And he says... Render under Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And in that context, to render under Caesar's what is Caesar's is saying much more than pay your taxes and fulfill your civic duty. He's saying, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, including that blasphemous image. Get it out of your hands. Give it back to him. And in this context, when he says... Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, the implied line in between is, and not a thing more. Do not render him what is God's, and do not render to him what he is claiming. And in this context, when he says, and render unto God what is God's, he's not just saying, pay your tithe, or worship the Lord, or do your spiritual obligations to the church. No, he is alluding to Psalm 96. Ascribe to the Lord all families of the earth. Ascribe to the Lord the glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. And say among the nations, say among Rome, the Lord reigns. Who reigns? Not Caesar. The Lord. This is a protest. The Lord reigns. The Lord of Caesar reigns, and he reigns all over all the earth, and he reigns over Rome, and he reigns over Caesar. And it's no coincidence that Psalm 96.5 aptly says, the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. And when the people make a god out of the government, it is a worthless idol. That's what Jesus is saying here. To give to God and to him alone the honor blasphemously claimed by Caesar. And so as one commentator put it, this is not a summons to detached piety, privatized individual spirituality, but it's a call to renounce paganism and to worship and serve the true God and no one else. And it has... Of implications. It's a call to refuse to attribute to the government what is rightfully claimed by God alone. The government has been established by God, and it is for our good. But governments tend and institutions tend to claim things that overreach. And they claim and they make promises that overreach. I, um, I actually... Uh, Whether or not I agree with all his politics or policies, I have tons of respect for President uh, uh, George W. Bush. I have tons of respect. Um, So I say that in this context. Uh, I I disagree with some of the major decisions he made, but I I have tons of respect for him as a president, as a person. Um, After 9-11, which I have tons of respect for him for 9-11, but after 9-11... they erected, uh, the war on terrorism was called Operation Infinite Justice. And after Operation Infinite Justice was enacted, they quickly had figured out they had to change the name because lots of Muslim communities said, no, only Allah brings infinite justice. Well, Christians believe only Jesus brings infinite justice. And so to his credit, George Bush changed the name. Then the administration changed the name. The, the, the administration then changed the name to Operation Enduring Freedom. But who brings enduring freedom? So Christians, believe that only Jesus brings enduring freedom. Only Jesus brings enduring peace. Only Jesus can ultimately protect you from the things that will harm you most. Only Jesus brings life and liberty and happiness and joy that's deep and forever. And yet we want to attribute to the government these things. That's why it's easy to make, especially politics, and especially national politics, like everything. I got these I got these emails during the last election and they, you know, they were urging me that I had to come to this meeting because they said this is a flight 93 election. And I was like, I have no idea what this means. And I start looking it up and basically they were saying like, like this is the moment. And if you don't rally your people to vote for this specific candidate, the history is going to be lost. The world is going to unravel and you have to do it and everything depends on this. And we've put, I mean, and the, the interesting thing too is it's, it's We've limited its politics, its national politics, and it's the executive branch. Because most of the time when we talk about praying for leaders, we don't even think about, for instance, the judicial branch. Uh, so so this, this sits at where if some people are cynical about the government and think that it can do no good, other people make the government everything, and think that if we don't get out and vote, the kingdom of God is not going to come. And vote this way. And uh, and I think that we need to be careful because I think we often are in danger of attributing to Caesar what is God's. And Michael Horton he puts it rightly when he says, it's easy for opinions and strategies, even deeply held political convictions, to morph into deified ideologies. And then he warns, he says, that unrealistic hopes typically end in disillusion and cynicism. In other words, the, those who put everything in government and think government's everything, and those who are cynical about government think it's not. they're not so far apart because usually cynicism is just disillusioned hope run its course, where you've put too much in your idol, and it failed you, and then you got cynical. But we can't, and we must not, and this is a call, to while we respect the governing authorities, and why we see the rightly established place of government and the important place of government in society and in the world and in God's economy, we do not attribute to government what can only be attributed to God. You know what Caesar's last words were? Did you enjoy the show? You know what Jesus' last words were? It is finished. And he's the one who can make all things new. So government has a God-given place, but that place, because it is God-given, is never absolute. This is a call not only to refuse to attribute to government what rightfully is claimed by God alone, it's also a call to denounce government's idolatrous claims to power, which is what Jesus is doing in this statement. And it's what John does in Revelation 13. You know, we have to read Romans 13, but we also have to read Revelation 13. And in Revelation 13 it is a highly apocalyptic book uh, where the language is unfamiliar to us. But in that book, John is critiquing the Roman government, which he calls the beast. And in critiquing it, I'll read Eugene Peterson's translation to help you understand. But he says, The whole earth was agog, gaping at the beast. And they worshipped the beast, exclaiming, There's never been anything like the beast. No one would dare go to war with the beast. The beast had a loud mouth, boastful and blasphemous. It could do anything it wanted for 42 months. It held absolute sway over all tribes and peoples, tongues, and races. John is talking about a powerful government that everyone gasp at And gives way to. And he's calling that government out to his churches in Asia Minor. And he's saying this is the beast that has claimed God-like power. It's a revolutionary and subversive text. And Jesus is equally as revolutionary and equally subversive when he says, Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and not a thing more. And to God what is God's and not what Caesar claims. It's a Jesus' revolution. It doesn't come about by the non-payment of taxes. It comes about by giving God his image back, which is an image which loves others in self-sacrificial love. An image which serves others and loves others, even enemies. That's how Jesus' revolution comes about, and that's how things change. That's how the kingdom comes and his will is done. It's in total obedience to an imitation of Israel's God who did not conquer with a sword but with a cross who loved his enemies and welcomed strangers. So here's the question. How do we know when we should focus on Romans 13? respecting the governing authorities and realizing that they're from God. And when should we focus on Revelation 13 and denounce the governing authorities and their idolatrous claim to power? When? Well, that's why I think this text is also a call to discernment. See, most Christians want a simple fix. They want it black and white. They want to say, no politics or politics. Vote this way or don't vote this way. This party good, this party bad. But I think that we have forgotten our call to discernment. Which, according to 1 Corinthians 12.10, is a spiritual gift. Discernment is that which enables the people of God to distinguish and recognize and identify and expose to report and rebuke the power of death in nations and institutions while they also identify, expose, report, and glory in the work of God, in the Word of God, Jesus Christ, wherever it's found in the world. And Romans 13, actually, in context, is a call for discernment because verse 11, Paul says, Besides this you know that the time, the hour, has come to you to wake from sleep, for salvation is near to us now, than when we first believe. Now when Paul talks about the hour, the time has come, he's talking about the hour of revelation, the hour of the gospel, the hour of God unveiling what he's doing in the world. It's why the the English Bible translation calls it, uh, it says, always remember that this is the hour of crisis. He's talking about, in the Greek, it's, it's kairos, it's And to discern the kairos is to see through the events of the day and to perceive the activity of God through those events or the anti-God powers through those events. And it's actually incumbent upon the church to discern these things. To know when, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you have to step up and speak out. And to know when this is a matter of Christian liberty that should be left to individual Christian consciences to debate over. And it's not going to be cut and dry. It's going to happen through discerning the Spirit and using the gifts of the Spirit. And I think Jeff Sessions actually knows this. Because when he issued that statement, he says, I do not believe Scripture or church history or reason condemns a secular nation state for having reasonable immigration laws. If we have them, then they should be enforced. That's exactly right. But here's, here's the important word, reasonable. And how do we decide what is reasonable? Are immigration laws reasonable? Or are they not? Are these laws reasonable? Or are they not? Are they just? Are they unjust? And where do we go to discern that? Well, well, that will require some discernment. And it will require us together to, to discern and pray and to know when to speak out and when not to went to hold silent. One person who knew this was Desmond Tutu. In the oppressive uh, regime of South African apartheid, he went to meet with governing officials, and they would not meet with him. And so he marched to a church, and he led a group of people to a church where they conducted a worship service. And there, he was in the middle of preaching a sermon when all the guards and reporters from the government showed up, and they lined the walls, and they sat there waiting to write down anything that he was going to say. he'd just been thrown in jail and released from it days earlier. And, uh, and in the middle of the sermon, he stopped, and he looked at those reporters and he said this, "You are very powerful." And he looked at those police officers and he said, "You are very powerful." And he looked at those government officials and he said, "You are very powerful." But I serve a God who is greater than you. And my God will not be mocked. And everyone was quiet. And then he said, in one of the most extraordinary challenges that the world has ever known, to political tyranny that the world has ever witnessed, Tutu said, since you have already lost, I invite you today to come and join the winning side. You know, I think that's a great invitation to all of us. Because I think the revelation of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ says this. History lost. Humanity lost. We all lost. And all our projects of salvation and, and, to, and to make the world right and good and everything right, it all lost. We lost. He won. And he invites us all weak, miserable sinners that we are, to come follow him as Lord and join the winning side. That's an invitation to you this morning to worship King Jesus. Amen.